Today's scripture reading comes from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of truth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Boer, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to this city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but will not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think we're entitled to them. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I have greater responsibility than you can ever fathom. Deep down in places you don't want to talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone that means something. You use them as a punchline. This is a quote from one of the, probably one of the most famous quotes of movie history uh, from the movie A Few Good Men where Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson, not Jack Nicholas the golfer, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise go at it in a court setting. In Micah 6, I want to take you to that court. I want you to think this is the setting in which Micah 6 happens. The Lord is taking the Israelite people to court. The first two verses kind of sets up the scene, so I just want to get to it really quickly. It says in verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. When the judge walks into the courtroom, the bailiff says, all rise, and everybody stands up. That's kind of the calling right here. Listen to what the Lord says. Micah says, hey, it's time to pay attention. And then he goes on to say who the jury is. So we have the defendant, the Israelites, the prosecutor, God the Father, and he's probably the judge as well. 
And then you have the jury, who is the mountains. It says in the first, uh, the next sentence, stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Why the mountains? Well, there's probably a few reasons. One, they were there from the beginning of time. They were, God created them from the beginning of earth. And they've been there steadfast. They've been strong. They stood tall. They can't be swayed. They can't be changed. They're unmovable. And so that's who the jury is. They probably overlooked the Israelites' actions from beginning of time to this point. But the important part is at the end of verse 2, it says, The Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So when that judge sits down and he says, This is the case, the Lord, versus, Lord God versus the people of Israel. If I was the Israelite people, I'd be scared. I've been to court once or twice, unfortunately, maybe a few more times. The first time I went in, I remember the judge walking in, and it was for a curfew ticket. But I was 15 years old and was convinced that I was going to jail for the next 10 years. It was scary. I couldn't imagine if the judge that walked in was God the Father. Because you know, if he's taking you to court, he has taken all the facts he has everything he needs to prosecute you. And there's no argument you're going to give that it's going to get you off of this. Now, if you've watched any of these uh, court shows or even in real life, when the crime is committed, there's a long period of time before it goes to court. And the same thing has happened here. The Israelites have had a long time of having God under or being protected by God, but still doing their own thing. And God said, that's enough. I have my case. I'm going to charge you now. And so he's going to give the facts here in verse 3 through 5. He says this, My people, and just like any good prosecutor, he starts with a question. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Wait, 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 wait. Don't answer. Let me remind you of some facts just so that you know what I'm kind of going, where I'm going with this. First fact. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you uh, from the land of slavery. You remember that whole Exodus thing? Yeah. You remember how I freed you from slavery from the Egyptian people and took you out of that situation you asked me to? Remember that? Oh, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Now, I can only imagine the Israelites are sitting back going, I knew he was going to bring that one up. He always brings that one up. It's like, come on, man. Can't you bring up anything else? Obviously, we know you did that, but that was a while ago. Jeez. It's kind of like that uh, high school friend that maybe he was a, a punt returner and he returned a touchdown, a 100-yard football touchdown, 100-yard football touchdown, a punt return for 100 yards for a touchdown. And in that, at that moment, it's exciting. And that next week, you're still talking about it and there's buzz. But two, four, six months later, five, ten years later, it's like, dude, have you not done anything else ever? Like, get over it. And that's how I feel like the Israelite people are like, hey, get over it, God. And he's like, really? I, I shouldn't have to. But here's fact too. I sent you Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. I sent you godly leaders. I sent you Moses, the law giver. I gave you Aaron, the priest who does your sacrifices for the atonement of sin. I gave you Miriam, the prophetess. I gave you godly people to help guide you along this journey into the promised land. What else do you want? They were there to teach you and, and guide you. Fact three, I was behind the scenes protecting you the whole time. You remember the king of Moab? Yeah, you remember how he took the prophet Baal, ba Balaam, Balaam? And he took his curses and turned them into uh, 
uh, blessings, not just once, not twice, not three times, but four times he turned those curses into blessings for you. You didn't even know the king of Moab wanted you dead because he was afraid of you, but I protected you. I was there. And fourth fact, when you crossed the Jordan, that first camp, I was there. All the way to the first camp in the promised land, I was there. I was protecting you. I was providing food and water. I protected you from other nations. I gave you the prophets and everybody else so that you knew I was there. I led you. Those are the facts. So again, Israelites, how have I burdened you? Now, this is, we go back to the clip from the movie where God says, deep down in places you don't want to talk about, you want to be your own God. You need to be your own God. And the Israelites, and not just the Israelites, but our own response should have been, on top of these mountains we shout, we need you as our God. We want you as our God. But that's not the rebuttal the Israelites give. Instead, they have a very poor response. They don't even give a response or a, 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 defendant, a defense to what God has called. They just go straight to, how do we fix this? And they say, what should we do, Lord? Should we bow down and exalt you? Shall we come with a burnt offering of a calf a year old? Will it please the Lord with a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall we give our firstborn for our transgressions, the fruit of our body for the sin of our soul? Now, notice the tone. I looked it up uh, a whole bunch of different scholars and, and commentaries to see what they, were, they took of this. And everybody had something different, but this is what I took from it. I took the tone to be very flippant and very arrogant. And I'll tell you why. The first one, it says, hey, should we offer uh, a calf a year old? Now, that's an appropriate response for the atonement of sin. You see that in Leviticus. No problem. I don't see anything wrong. But then they go on and they're like, how about 10,000 rams? Well, we don't see that many rams. And so it starts to go, okay, well, maybe they're just really, really sorry and they just want to overdo it. Then they go, 10,000 rivers of olive oil. They can't possibly produce a stream of olive oil any less 10,000 rivers. And so I go, all right, now you're just being arrogant. And finally, the firstborn. Do we sacrifice them to you, Lord? And before you go, well, well, wait a second. Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, but that was a test of his faith. And Abraham was faithful. The Israelites are not being faithful. They're not being obedient in this case. You say, all right, maybe um, the, the, the Passover where God crucified or um, uh, took the firstborns of the Egyptians. But what happened with the Egyptians? Did they repent? No, not at all. What you see here is that the Israelites have gone out of their way to have relationships with other countries and they've taken on their religions and their religions ask for sacrifice of the firstborn to their gods. And God says, what are you doing? Now, yes, God says, hey, sacrifice for the atonement of sin. But what the Israelites are failing to understand is that it is, they need a heart change. They need to start to obey and follow. It's not just the sacrifice that God wants. He wants their hearts to change. What the Israelites are saying is, hey, how do I get this over as fast as possible so I can get back to what I was doing? It's kind of like when we have our children. And this was me when I was a kid. I wanted to get to the ice cream at the end of dinner. 
and I had the pile of vegetables to eat. And my parents were like, you can't have the ice cream until you eat the vegetables. So what do you do? You pull, plug your nose, you stuff the vegetables in, you eat them as fast as you can, and you swallow them just so you can get the ice cream. That's what the Israelites are doing. They're saying, listen, what's the punishment? I know, here, I know the punishment. Let me give you some sacrifice so I can get back to doing what I wanted. But God says, I don't care about the sacrifice. It's not about the sacrifice. I want your heart. I want it to be changed. I want it to be following me. He says in Isaiah chapter uh, 1, verse 13, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incenses are detestable to me. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of burying burying them. Thank you. 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. And in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, I, deserve, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. We also need to understand, it's not about just saying, hey God, I'm sorry. We need to understand that we need to obey and follow God. God's response, if we go back to that movie, would be, you want answers? And we're like, yeah, we want the truth. You can't handle this truth. You haven't been able to handle this truth, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. Verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he wants from us. To act justly just means to act in a fair way to others and God. It's to treat other people with equality. It's to follow the rules that are of the land that have been put in place by the people before us. It's because God has put those people there. And more importantly, it's to follow God's rules. It's to love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. To love your neighbors yourself. Not to lie, to steal. Not to commit murder. Not to covet somebody's wife. It's to love mercy, which means to quickly forgive and not to bring it up over and over and over again putting it over people's heads. It's to forgive and to move on. It's not, it doesn't say to have mercy. It says to love mercy. And finally, to walk humbly, it's to treat others better than yourself. It's really just an embodiment of the first two. If you're acting justly, justly and you're loving mercy, you're probably walking humbly with God. And so he calls us to walk humbly with those around us. Let's look at Jesus' life just for a moment, and see how this plays out. I want to read a bunch of verses for you, so just hang on, and I'll kind of go back to why I'm reading them. 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Philippians 2, 5, 5 through 11 With this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humility. Taking the form of a servant, humility. Being born in the likeness of men, humility. Being found in the form of human, humility. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 for even the Son of Man came to be served, or came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. And then you have John chapter 13, verse 3 through 7, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He humbles himself. See, Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth as human, was born a baby, lived and died as a human. He lived a perfect life. He felt pain. He felt sadness. He felt hunger. He gave up all the riches of of heaven to come and live with us so that he could take our sins, even though he knew no sins, and nail them to the cross and pay for them by being resurrected three days later. That is mercy, that one would die for their friends. That is humility, that he would take on something that he did not deserve. And he calls us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So how does that look in our lives? Well, let's just take mercy for a moment. Love mercy. Maybe your spouse, maybe your husband cheated on you. And you forgave them. But you didn't love mercy. You just said, I forgive you. But every time they leave, you're like, hey, you remember that one time when you cheated on me? And you're always bringing it up because you've never really fully uh, let it go. They've repented. And you said, yeah, I got that. But, but... Or your child who drives the car into a parking lot car. And every time they leave from that point on, you you said, I forgive you. I show you mercy. But every time they leave, they're like, hey, just remember to check all your blind spots. Hey, just remember there's cars behind you. Hey, don't forget that time. Because you truly haven't let it go. Or how about humility? Here's one that I'll probably offend some people. And, and I put this on my shoulders as well. I hate wearing masks. I've worn it once. Um, but you know what? It shows humility. It shows a love and compassion for other people. I know what we say. I don't want to. I don't like it. I have the right. I, I, I. But what does that show to other people? If Menards is asking you to wear a, a, a mask or your work or church is asking you to wear a mask and you're like, I don't want to. Imagine that conversation standing before Jesus and he goes, hey, I heard you don't want to wear a mask because that might, you know, make other people feel comfortable. And you're like, yeah, I don't think I need to. I have that right. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to die for your sins either. But I did. Hmm. When you put it in that context, it kind of hits hard, doesn't it? Here's my problem with the, the phrase black life matters. I got your attention, don't I? I'm sure I do. Let's get rid of all the different political ideologies and things that have attached itself to that phrase, Black Lives Matter. You have the defunding of the police and where the money goes. And just let's forget all about that and just talk about the phrase, Black Lives Matter. Because black lives do matter. The problem I have with it is that they have left Christ out of the equation. Other than maybe at the beginning of a peaceful protest and they pray, you don't see Christ being a part of this movement. Here's the thing, though. God loves black people. He loves Asians and Hispanics and whites and everybody. God loves everyone. If he didn't, he wouldn't have sent his son Jesus to die for us. Racism is essentially hate. 
And that is in direct opposition of who God is. Jesus proved to the disciples over and over, it didn't matter who you were or where you came from, that you were important to him. It didn't matter if you were sick, if you were paralyzed, if you had leprosy. It didn't matter if you had evil spirits, if you were Samaritan or Jew. It didn't matter if you were a tax collector, a cop, a prostitute, a homeless person, or uh, even a Pharisee, just to name a few. If we want to change this world, we need to look at the life that matters the most, and that is Jesus Christ's life. And we need to start to emulate it in our own lives. If we love God, we will love our neighbors, and it doesn't matter who our neighbors are. Jesus demonstrated the greatest love by dying on the cross for our sins. He died for every single person. And that is in direct opposition of hate. That was love. When we are willing to share our faith and the love we have for Christ with others, then we will begin to see real change because Christ will be leading that change. He is one that is able to change people's hearts. So let's bring it back to black lives matter because black lives do matter. If they are being being treated unequally, then we should show and join them and show them what it looks like to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly by sharing our faith that we have in Christ so that they can come to a saving faith in Christ and then this world can actually make real changes. But here's the other thing. It's not just black lives. It's cops' lives. It's mothers' lives, children's lives. We all need Christ. And without Christ, real change can't happen. Why do you think we support Adopt-A-Badge? Is it because we love cops? Yeah, we love cops. It's because we want them to know who Jesus Christ is so that they start following and obeying him and that would mean they will act justly. They will love mercy and they will walk humbly. Why do you think it is that we support Brass Community School? It's so that we can have relationships. I wear this bow tie not because I want to look like a judge today. I wear this bow tie because I mentor a kid from Brass Community School since first grade and now he's going into seventh grade. And on Friday, he called me up and said, hey, can you come over? I have a Father's Day gift for you. And this was the gift. I've never worn a bow tie in my life. But the fact that he considers me a father-like type, and he has enough love and compassion for me, and I've shown the same to him, I'm wearing it today, and I'm wearing it proud. And the best part about that was last year at VBS, he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And I've seen the growth over these six years. That's why we support Brass Community School, to see real life change so that his life changes and his life, that, or the lives he's touched with, will change as well. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion for one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreign or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Let's go back to that movie clip. 
We use words like act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. We use those words as the backbone that, backbone that means something. You use them as a punchline. Oh, Kenosha Bible Church, I hope we don't use those as words as punchlines. We need to use these as our backbone to our faith and being able to share it. Finally, we have the judgment and sentencing. God says, all right, here's your crimes. This is what you've done. And now here's your punishment. And I want you to look at two words. The first word is in the very first verse of chapter 9. It says, listen. Now, a few months ago, I talked in my, uh, about Micah chapter 3, verse 9. And it says, hear this, O Judah. Same thing. Listen, you have time to change. Yeah, there's going to be some consequences for your previous sin, but you have time to change. You can make a difference if you just listen. Listen, the Lord is calling to you, and you to fear that his name is wisdom. And then the other word I want you to see is therefore. God sets it up. Here's the crimes. Therefore, here's your punishments. So you see it in verse 13 and 16. In verse 10, it says, here's the crimes. I, am I still to forget all your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house? Shall I acquit somebody for dishonest scales and bags of false weights? Oh, your rich people are violent and your inhabitants are liars and your tongues speak deceitfulness? Sounds like our politicians. Yeah, I'm attacking everyone today, ain't I? Our politicians, that's, that's what they do. And we're called, and he's saying, listen, look at, these sins, these are your crimes. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you, to put because of your sins. And then he tells all these different things. And he says, basically, you have stored up treasures on earth. And good luck because they turn to dust. You have stored nothing up in heaven. And that is your punishment. And here's your second one, all right? Verse 16, you've oppressed or you have observed the statues of Omri and you practiced all of Ahab's house and you have followed their traditions. He's basically saying, look it, King Ahab uh, did more evil in the sight of God than any other king before him. These are evil, evil, wicked men and they practiced other religions and had other gods that they worshiped. And, and God the Father is saying, Israel, you're doing the same thing. I've been here the whole time, but yet you are following false gods. What are you doing? Therefore, I will give you over to ruin, and your people will be deserted, and you will bear the scorn of nations. Listen, you still have time. But history tells us a hundred years later, the Babylonians come into Judah, take care of the Israelites, spread them throughout all the different nations. Because they did not repent. They were just worried about the sacrifice. Going back to that movie. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? God asks us, Kenosha Bible Church, have you obeyed and followed me? And hopefully our response, without the swearing, you gosh darn right I did. Hopefully God doesn't ask us this. Kenosha Bible Church, how have I burdened you? Because if that is his response, our response better be repentance. Not, what do I sacrifice? It'd be, it better be a repentant heart followed closely behind by obeying his rules and laws and following him. 
It's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this passage, and I just pray that our, our, we're willing to listen, that our ears are willing to hear, that we have ears to hear, like you ask us in, in Mark chapter 4, verse 9. That we would change our paths if we are disobeying you and not following you. That we would show love. That we would show mercy. That we would act justly with others. And that we would walk humbly with you. And people would notice that because there's something different. May we treat people with respect. May we, we lift them up above ourselves. May we be nothing just like, we want, just like your son was. That we might emulate his life. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for what he did on the cross. We thank you that he defeated death. We thank you that we can have a relationship that is so close. And we thank you for the riches that will be in heaven when we follow you and obey you. Lord, may we be a people that go into our community and make change because of what you've done and that we are able to share that with others. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.